If you've been coming to High Point for some time, you know that I've said on numerous occasions, it's very important to have a plurality of voices in the pulpit. That's why I try to not be preaching between 12 and 14 Sundays a year, and my hope is for that to increase over time, not decrease, as we have more and more competent leaders being raised up in our church. The other thing is, is as the church grows and people come to faith and people grow, um, the, the day will hopefully quickly come where we'll have to plant a church and there won't be room enough here and we'll have to figure out, hopefully God will create a movement out of us, not just one church where we're comfortable and the world does whatever it does out there, and right? And so we need to be constantly raising, helping new leaders become better at doing ministry. Also, um, we shouldn't be reliant on one voice. You never know when my life is going to implode, right? It's, it's my job and the elder's job and my accountability partner's job and my wife's job to try, try to help make sure that doesn't happen. But it's also one of my jobs to make sure that you are not spiritually dependent on me and that your faith won't be destroyed if my faith implodes or my life implodes. It's important to have multiple godly influences. And also, as a church gets to a certain size and high points at kind of one of those critical moments right now, in order to continue to develop as a church in a healthy way, there has to be this whole strata of, of Christian leaders that nobody really sees, but that are profoundly godly, good at giving biblical advice, know the scriptures, are theologically astute, and so on. Otherwise, you, we just cannot grow. The, the pyramid of leadership breaks down. And so um, this Sunday that I, I'm, I call Split Sunday, it's after Christmas and before the new year. Oftentimes no one comes to church and the kids are in the service. What better time than to, to tap somebody who's in the church and ask them to share God's word and to be able to spend some time with them beforehand and critique them afterwards and so on. Um, the person we've invited to come and speak this morning is John Collop. John's been coming to High Point since June 14th of this year. He, um, his wife Shannon and their three kids that range from seven to 16 months go here. And um, he was a youth pastor for three years, I think in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then was, um, he helped plan a church. He moved here to help plan a church that planted and is running and is a church in the Dane County area. And um, he, is under, he has an undergraduate in Bible from someplace way up near the UP, but can speak proper English. And um, he also has some credits from Southern Seminary, which in my opinion is the best of the Southern Baptist seminaries, though of course not as good as the one I went to. Um, so we've invited John to come and speak to us this morning. So I'll pray for him and then please listen to him um, as one who's trying to re-speak the Word of God through his own personality. Let's pray. Father, as John comes, um, please help us to listen with attentive hearts, recognizing that you use many, many mouthpieces, many voices, many idioms through many personalities, but godliness and gospel-centeredness and the re-speaking of the message in the text of the Bible that you have spoken into um, and us re-speaking it faithfully is what we should be listening for. So Holy Spirit, come now and make us humble enough to listen and keen enough to discern and passionate enough to want to apply what you'd speak to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, Nick giving me the opportunity to come here this morning and speak. Which, by the way, are we just going to gloss over his fingernails? I just, did anyone else notice that? All right. Just want to make sure. Maybe he'll discuss it later. <laughs> but um, again, thanks for the opportunity. Pray for me. Uh, uh, the, the little um, kids there got me sick this week. So um, I'm trying not to cough, so if I do, I apologize. But that's the family. Uh, my wife, Shannon, we've been married 11 and a half years. 
Um, got married before I finished my undergrad. And then Cademan is our son. He's seven years old, awesome little boy. He's a great kid. Emma Joy is my little bug. She's uh, four, going to be five in February. And then my birdie, uh, Nora May, is our youngest at 16 months. So you'll probably see them running around. They're not here today. Like I said, they are all sick, and they decided to love me and pass it on to me. So, again, thank you for the opportunity. Pray for my voice. Pray for uh, my cough as well during the service. This is... Uh, picture you're probably familiar with, or at least the style of. It's Thomas Kincaid. Maybe some of you have uh, a picture of his, uh, a piece of his in your home. And many of his paintings, maybe all of his paintings, kind of give this same idea of when you look at it, you just kind of think, that's nice. And you look at it and you see that the house is probably full of life right now. All the lights are on. People are probably inside laughing and playing games, probably much like this holiday season. And you you just look at the picture and you have such this great, um, you get this feeling. Well, personally for me, that's not a nice feeling. I like palm trees. I like branches. I like the beach and warmth. So this isn't peaceful, but I thought it was a good picture for our time. And we look at this picture, and many, and I've seen it in many different places, when it comes to these kind of pictures, maybe a lot of Kincaid's pictures is, um, they like to put scripture references underneath, don't they? Or some inspirational quote. And many times that I've seen on many of the different pictures, there's always a familiar passage to all of us, and that's Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And you see this beautiful picture, and you look down, and you look at it, and it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not of evil. And you just think, wow, that's, that's great. You get all these warm feelings inside of you. And that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. If you have that in your house, that's not a bad thing. The thing is, the passage, Jeremiah 29, was not written to a people in a tranquil setting. It wasn't written to a people who had this feeling of, "Ah, let's just play games and laugh. Let's just have fun with each other. That's not who it was written to. This passage was written to a people who were living in a very difficult situation, They were a people who just got humiliated in war. They were destroyed. They lost family members. They lost their homeland. They were taken out of their homeland. They were dragged to an unfamiliar foreign land. They felt alone. They felt out of place. They were alienated. They were exiles. They did not want to be where they were. And I know I probably sound like a Debbie Downer now when it comes to this picture, but that's the reality of where we're going to look at. Jeremiah, um, without getting too much into background, because we don't have too much time, Jeremiah um, was writing to the people here. And he says, previously he was rebuking them. He was telling them to turn back to God. He was telling them to turn back to God, to stop worshiping idols. And now his tone changes. In, verse, in chapter 29 here. 
And he goes from a tone of rebuking to a tone of encouraging. And he speaks God's good plan for them. God's good plan for them. And this morning, I want us to look at how God does have a good plan for us. If our life is much like the picture depicted there and everything seems to be going well, or maybe our life feels like the children of Israel, ripped out of their homeland, things don't seem to be going all that well. Whatever it is, God's got a good plan and he has a good plan for us. If you have your scriptures, turn to Jeremiah 29. If I remember right, I I believe it's on page 1190 in your pew Bibles. I will have it up here, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to it. Jeremiah 29, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. These are the words of our Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord for it. Because, it is, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams, to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are come, completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will give you back your, and will get Excuse me. I I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That concludes the reading of God's word. God has a good plan for us. We're going to jump around a little bit in this passage. Back down to Jeremiah 29 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you. Who's that you there? Who's he talking to? Obviously, he's talking to the audience that he has. But for us today, who's he talking to? Who's that you there? He's speaking to all the exiled people of God living in Babylon. He's speaking to the covenant people. 
He's speaking to a group of people. God's good plan is for his people. God loves us individual, as individuals, right? We know that. He knows us intimately. We're able to have a personal relationship with him because of the work of Jesus Christ. As individuals, we are able to come to the throne room of God, not as commoners, but as princes and princesses. As sons and daughters, we're able to enter into the presence of our great God. As individuals, we're able to do that. But we must not forget, we must never forget that when God draws us to himself, when he brings us into his throne room, as I just said, he brings us and he joins us to his people, his church. My voice is going to crack here in a minute, I know it is. He brings us into a covenant community. We have to begin to get that around our heads. It was the same with the Jewish people here. God called the people of Israel to be set apart from the very, from the very beginning with Abraham. He called Abraham out, a, a worshiper of the sun, and he chose Abraham to be, a, to be the beginning of a special people. And he said that you must be set apart, that you must live with each other, that you must live in community with each other. And it goes on and we see that, that the people are always called to be set apart, to live with each other, to love with each other, to take care of each other. God loves us as individuals. He desires an intimate relationship with us, but his desire for us as individuals must be within the community. He wanted them to love and fellowship with others who loved to fellowship with him. So we shouldn't read a passage like this or really any passage within the scriptures and think, oh, well, what does this have to do with just me? Will there be personal application? Yes, that's without a doubt. But at the same time, we must see God moving not only in our lives, but in the covenant community as well. Why is that a big deal? Why do you hear so often, and even um, today, so often here at High Point to get involved in small groups? Why do you hear so often to get involved in our Sunday school class, to actually talk to each other after the service, to build relationships with each other during the service? Why, why is that so important? In our culture, and especially I think for me, we, we have a tendency to be very individualistic. It's kind of our Western mindset of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I can do it on my own if it's better that I just do it and get it done the way I want to get it done rather than asking anyone for help. We do that in all of our lives and then so often we take that into our spiritual life as well. And I know for me, I, if I'm struggling with a, a sin or if I'm struggling with maybe just having a bad mood or maybe some type of depression, I, I can just do it on my own. I, I don't need anybody else. I don't want to talk to anybody else about my problems. They're my problems. Let them be my problems. But that's not what the scripture teaches anywhere. It says to live in community, 
to share each other's burdens, to mourn with those who mourn, to celebrate with those who celebrate. It says, the scriptures tells us that we are to be living in community for the sake of our spiritual growth. I promise you that you will grow closer to God when you involve others who are growing closer to God in your life. And I know that might just sound like a plug for you to get involved in small group or any of the other things that are going on here, but it's reality. When you're willing to open yourself up and live in an area and live with the people who love you, who care for you, when you hurt, they will hurt with you. When they, you rejoice, they will rejoice with you. So are you committed? Or do you just drop in when it's convenient? Do you come in and leave quickly so you don't have to talk to anybody? Do you just come in, get your check mark for the week, and leave? God's plan is for his people. That means we can never think of God's purpose as for us disconnected from his purpose and his good plan for his people. Be part of the community. Be part of, if, if this is your church, be part of the community at High Point. If this is not your church and you're visiting this week, be part of your church back at home. If you're on the fence, We'd love to have you in our community. God's good plan is for his people. Secondly, God's good plan includes redemptive discipline. When we think of God doing us good, we don't often think of trials. We don't often think of tribulation. We don't often think of difficult, difficulty that we're having to endure. A lot of times when we think of God's good plan for us, we think of bonuses, of blessings, of health, of wealth, of good things that we could we just go on and on talking about. But that's not what we see here. And I don't want you to think that in your own life. We see God using difficult circumstances, hard times, discipline for the good of his people. We must recognize, and this is something we don't like to talk about, we must recognize that sometimes God brings trial, sometimes God brings discipline because we're not willing to let go of a sin. We're holding on to a specific sin with all our might, and we say, God, I love you, and everywhere else, everywhere else, I love you. I'll take care of my family. I'll take care of my kids. I'll I'll do everything that you desire me to do, but I'm just not going to let go. We won't say that out loud. We'll act like we're going to, you know, let it go, but we still hold on to it. And sometimes God brings discipline into our lives so that the sin will be revealed so that we can give that over to him. We don't like to talk about that. Why? Because especially in counseling situations, we don't like to tell individuals, have you examined that possibly you're going through this because of sin? Why? Because we don't want to be Job's friends, do we? Job's three, three friends in this story. Job was a man in the scriptures who God allowed Satan to test him in 
unimaginable ways. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. Everything. And Job's friends came. And they, Job, Job, who was innocent, he, he wasn't sinless, but he, this wasn't happening because he was, had some hidden sin. Job's friends said, Job, you're sinning. You don't have enough faith. You're, you're obviously doing something wrong. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I am, I'm, 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 I'm clean. I'm, I'm, I'm free of this. Like, no, Job, that, and they were wrong, and, 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 the, and in the passage, they kind of seem to look like fools, aren't they? And none of us want to look like those fools when we're talking to somebody, but the reality is sometimes God does that. So, when trials come, when discipline comes, the first thing you do, and I think it's very important, is you examine your life and say, is there something that God is teaching me? Is there something that God is wanting me to let go? So the first thing is correction. The second thing is a sense of refining. Some guy, sometimes God disciplines you like a father because you're doing something wrong. Sometimes God disciplines you like a coach coming alongside of an athlete who's pushing the athlete, who's trying to make the athlete better, who's, who's building up their strength and their endurance and their endurance. And like James says, that the, the trials come so that your faith will be strengthened. Sometimes God brings hard times so that you are better prepared for later on in life. The hardship that you're going through is strengthening your faith. God sometimes brings discipline in order to make us more dependent on Him and less dependent on ourselves. I talked about how we're very individualistic, how we kind of have our own, hey, I'll get it done myself. It's better if I do it than anybody else. Sometimes God brings discipline. Sometimes God brings correction. Sometimes God brings a refining to our lives in order that we will just say, I can't do it. I can't let go of this sin by myself. I need the Spirit to work in our life. We like to think, and sometimes we're told that when you come to God, everything is going to be great, which it is. We're told sometimes when I come to God, everything is going to begin to work out. The health and prosperity will begin. There'll be rainbows and butterflies and marshmallows and cotton candy. And if I'm really spiritual, I'll see a unicorn. But it'll just be wonderful, beautiful bliss. There's a story in the, um, in the New Testament, and the kids probably know um, the song to it about a wise man and a foolish man. Remember, the wise man built his house upon, I'm not going to sing the song. The wise man built his house upon the sand, or a rock, sorry. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came down and the floods, yeah, the rains came down and the floods went up, the rains came down and the floods went up. And the foolish man's house went splat. And the wise man's house stood strong. And it's true. He had his foundation in the rock. And as Christians, we have our foundation in the rock of Christ. But the thing is, just as it happened to the foolish man, the wise man's house 
had rain come on it. The flood still came up on the wise man's house. The wind still beat against the wise man's house. He may have lost a piece of siding or some roofing shingles. He may have had some water damage in the house. The trials still came to the wise man who had his foundation in Christ. But the difference was he stood firm because Christ was his foundation. He understood that the trial was from God and that it was you being used by God. He understood that he could stand firm because of Christ. But these people in our passage, 70 years to purify them. When Jeremiah told them that they were going to be there for 70 years, not just the few years that the false prophet said, but 70 years, many of them knew immediately that they weren't going home. They knew that they were going to die in a foreign land. God's good plan involves redemptive discipline. So that job you didn't get, that relationship that didn't work out, the sickness you are facing, the financial hardship you are having to endure. God tells us here that he brings difficulty into our lives for our good. Exactly what that means in your particular situation, I don't know. But the scripture tells us that God has a good plan for us. He is purifying us. He is causing us to look towards him. He is causing us to, to put our faith and our trust and our hope in him. God's good plan sometimes includes redemptive discipline. You know, sometimes we develop this mindset that God's good plan can only really happen when our circumstances change. God's good plan can only happen if uh, something changes in our lives. I'm right here. God's really not doing anything in my life right here. If I just got over there, God's moving over there. God's, God's, God's doing great things with people over there. Who The people who are over there are actually involved in, in, in doing great things for God, and I'm just right here. God's not really doing anything. God's good plan can't be working for me here. I have to get over there. I have to get married. I have to have kids. I have to get the kids out of the house. I have to retire. I have to do over and over in order for God's good plan to work. I have to find a, I have to find a different job. I have to find a different church. I have to go into a different ministry. I have to go into whatever it is. And yes, there are times, there are times when you have to move, when God is directing you to move. And, but the thing is, when he directs you to move, his good plan is for you to move. When he directs you to stay, his good plan is for you to stay. And this is exactly what the exiles were experiencing there. They were in Babylon, and they were supposed to be in Jerusalem, where God's chosen, elected people, and we're in Babylon. J Jerusalem is in God's land. We're here. We're supposed to be there. We're not in Jerusalem. And they're going over in their heads. They're like, well, what is God going to be doing here? God can't be moving here. God can't be moving here. And it goes through verses 5 through 7. 
to build your house, have kids, plant your garden, pray for the city, be involved in the city that you're with, because if it prospers, you will prosper. God tells them, I am God here in Babylon. I have not stepped off of my throne because you're not in Jerusalem. I'm still working on your behalf and my glory here in Babylon. My good plan for you is not on hold. It's not in a different circumstance. It's it's not in a different place of your life. My good plan is happening right now, and it's the same for us. Many of us have plans of what life is going to look like in the future, don't we? And many times we think that, well, when that thing, whatever it is in your own life, think about it right now, whenever that thing happens, that's when things are really going to start moving in worshiping and and, and ministry. And and that's really when I'm going to be able to see God work. God will work there, but he's working now. He's working in your life now. They're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. God doesn't say, this is just the in-between, the meaningless time. Sit back, relax. He says, get to work. The thing is, for Jeremiah to relay this message, it was kind of a radical message. They wanted a ticket out of town. They wanted to sulk. They wanted to moan. They wanted to complain. God says, this is part of my purpose. Do you ever think that if you really want to serve God, you have to be a pastor or a missionary, or you have to be on staff at some Christian organization? John Stott, in his uh, book, The Christian Mission in the Modern World, John Stott makes the point that Jesus calls all his followers to ministry. He says, if we are Christians, it's a very simple sentence. If we are Christians, we must spend our lives in the service of God and man. If we're Christian, if you are Christian here today, your life is to be in service of God and man. But he doesn't say, and nor do the scriptures teach, that if you are a pastor, if you are a missionary, if you are you know, on staff somewhere, that that's when you serve God and man. And I think that's, that, that is a, a very um, good thing that is taught here at High Point. Because the majority of what goes on each Sunday and during the week is done by volunteers. People who understand that though they have other jobs... Though they might be a lawyer or a doctor or a mechanic or a farmer or a statesman, accountant, a vet, a homemaker, a retiree, though they are that, their ministry is to God and man. Their whole life is to God and man. God's good plan is where you are, is where we are. And then finally, real quick, God's good plan is to give us more of himself. Later on at the end of the passage, if you remember it, 
God tells them that he will fulfill his promise to them, that they will get home, that if they seek him, they will find him, that he is going to give them himself. I'm kind of, um, when it comes to weddings, I'm, I think I'm, I'm kind of a weird guy. I really enjoy going to weddings. I don't like being a part of them. I've officiated weddings. I've been groomsmen in weddings. The problem with those situations is that you deal with the two crazy people, the mom and the bride. But if you're actually just attending the wedding, you don't have to see any of that. You see all of the good stuff, not all the behind the scenes, not fun stuff. But the reason why I enjoy weddings so much is the moment when the whole processional comes down, the groom's at the front, and ever, the door's shut back up in the back, and everyone's sitting here. And what's everyone doing? They're, they're anticipating something big. They're anticipating the pinnacle, in my opinion, of the wedding. Yes, the whole wedding part, that's good too. But they're waiting. And then the doors fly open, and the bride begins to come down. And every time, and I don't, don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I do. Every time, all I think about is Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like a, <coughs> excuse me, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her, given her to wear. So every time I'm at a wedding and that happens, all I can think of is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And someday, you and I, by God's grace, are going to be there. It'll be the moment when we can see God face to face. When we can see God as our first parents, Adam and Eve, did before they sinned. We can walk with him. We will have our bridegroom, Christ, with us. God's good plan is to give us more of himself. When you envision God giving you a, a future and a hope, <clears throat> what do you picture? I'll tell you, if it's anything less than more of God himself, your picture is too small. The greatest good that God can give his people is himself. Why? Because he is our good. And the basis of our knowledge of God is the mercy, is the mercy and grace of God. We are called to seek God. We are called to, to search after him. We are called to call out to him. But do you realize who gives that invitation to the people here? Who gives that invitation to us to call out to God, to seek for God? God gives it. He's the one who's coming to look for us. He's the one who is coming to rescue us. He is the bridegroom who is coming to rescue his bride and to take her away. The basis of our relationship is not our effort. 
It is not our good works. It's not the fact that you put your tail in the pew every week. The basis of our relationship with God is God. It is what he did by sending his son Christ to sacrifice himself on our behalf. The story of deliverance um, and mercy to the undeserving exiles in Babylon is a foretaste of God's ultimate mercy in the giving of his son. Just like them, we are stubborn. Just like them, we hold on to our sin. And yet, Jesus came. He took the judgment of God. He took what we deserved by the spilling of his blood so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed. And just like the stubborn people in Babylon at that time, God's grace was still greater than their sin. And just like us, God's grace is going to be greater than any sin that you have. So I ask of you, I plead with you to repent, which means turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. Turn to the one who is king. Submit to him, the one who rules and reigns over your life. So we come back to the picture. Just so you know, I have absolutely no idea what your next year is going to look like. You might have a year that looks, that it depicts what this picture is trying to show. A year of, of peace, of what we call good things, of great blessings. That might be your year. Some of you will get a promotion. Some of you will get a better job. Some of you will maybe leave for the mission field. Maybe you'll have a baby. Some of you will be able to have the opportunity to retire. Some of you will have the same future and emotion that this picture depicts. Some of you might not. Some of your, mere, of your year might look more like Van Gogh's scream than a Thomas Kincaid picture. But God's good plan for us, his future, his hope is better than we, anything that we could create. His future, his hope is going to be worth all of the struggles his hope, his future that he <clears throat> is bringing you through is going to be worth all of it. Because one day, we'll be able to see our king. One day, we'll be able to call out to him and he'll be right there in front of us. So I tell you, I plead with you, make him your king. He promises to forgive. He promises to save you. He promises to rescue you and bring you into him. Bring you into his presence. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about here.
Father, you have given much to us. Lord, and in our hard times and in um, the times of blessing, Father, we know that your good plan is still going forth. So as we dwell on that, I pray that we might have faith, that we might have an understanding that you are moving for our good and your glory. Father, that we might trust you. And as this next year comes, we pray that we might be constantly mindful of those around us. Lord, that we might desire your good plan for all men. And your good plan is yourself. In your son's name I pray. Amen.